This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. The speed and scale of Africa's third wave is nothing like we've seen before. The rampant spread of more contagious variants pushes the threat to Africa up a whole new level, says the WHO Regional Director for Africa. Now, Mr. Saudi, the numbers are scary. The continent has seemed not to do anything during this pandemic. We have failed to even produce a single vaccine. But first things first, when we say the continent and the pandemic, what are your first thoughts? And I think continent, African continent and the pandemic, tricky, tricky. I think that's really it. I mean, unlike most of the Western or even Asian world, we are not as developed as we'd like to be. That's the first issue. And so when you think of issues such as vaccine rollout or keeping vaccine inventory, I get worried. Perhaps that sums it up as a word. When I think continent and, and COVID-19, I feel we all approach that topic with a certain level of concern. And speaking about concerns and in efforts to fight this pandemic, whose approach do you think has made sincere efforts when we juxtapose the public sector and the private? Do you feel maybe some humanitarian efforts are worth noting or maybe the government's efforts to mitigate the effects of the pandemic? So what approaches would you say stand out the most for you? If we're talking purely on the continent side, I think look, the vaccine rollout has been delayed, first of all, and that's across the continent. We've only vaccinated less than 2% as an entire continent. I think we should look at it collectively in that sense. So I don't want to start uh, looking at countries that developed some vaccines and picking them as the best or, or not. I think really as a continent, the AU mainly, should have and could have done much, much more. But yes, I mean, in a continent where you've got uh, over 600 million people that do not have access to electricity, and I mean, even 60% of sub-Saharan African hospitals or hospital facilities also don't have access to electricity. So I think those are the real issues that are affecting where we are as a continent. Uh, but I wouldn't isolate a single country and say they've done better than another including ours, despite the infrastructure we have to roll out. We delayed and it's hitting us heavily in the pocket right now. And looking at the political unrest in the region and the continent, as you have said, the region has never been this unstable. Do you think COVID-19 has contributed to this? And can the pandemic and lack of preparation, as you've said, the underdevelopment, be considered a recipe for disaster that allowed such instability to arise? Certainly, you know, issues of governance or the broader politic affect how you then are able to or not able to respond to pandemics such as this one. With the unrest in Eswatini, for example, you can't imagine that the government is focused on any level in vaccinating the people. And similarly, in the northern parts of Mozambique, and there's been some unrest in Lesotho, uh, the country right now, South Africa, is also facing all sorts of protests following on from President Zuma's arrest. So one, that means the spread of the virus is more likely, the Delta variant being easier to spread and so forth. But it then also means that these issues of government affect how the government will then ultimately be able to deal with the pandemic. Because the pandemic will spread, the government will have 
less resources to actually vaccinate people. They'll be less prepared because they're dealing with these issues. So it's all linked. Governance and how you respond and ultimately defeat the disease are quite linked. And there are certainly other factors that we can owe to the spread of the pandemic and the virus, rather. Um, There are 21 countries on the continent so far that have experienced a third wave of infections, and 10 of those are experiencing a more severe wave than before. So could we owe the failure of the continent as a whole to develop and, and actually build hospitals to how the pandemic has actually played out? I mean, there are many countries across Africa who do not have the infrastructure to handle the effects of this pandemic, even on a health perspective. So could we say the failure of the continent to develop and build hospitals, in your opinion, has it led to the hard reality that the pandemic has brought upon us? Yes, Karabo, I mean, it's quite true that the infrastructure failures on the continent affect the levels of disease and, and the spread of disease across the continent. Certain regions across the continent are known for certain diseases from malaria to all sorts of things, HIV and AIDS and the like. And really, this is linked to both issues of infrastructure and issues of awareness. So poor electricity means poor connectivity, and poor connectivity means poor abilities to then spread out the word about these pandemics when they happen. But the poor connectivity and poor infrastructure are all linked as well because the government hasn't built the necessary hospitals It hasn't installed the necessary equipment for electricity. And this ultimately leads to citizens paying the ultimate price. And that's what we have right now. And changing gears to tap into what you had said earlier about the vaccine, a continent of 54 debatable countries has yet to produce a vaccine. Why do you think we have been unable as a continent to produce a single vaccine for the 900 million people that reside here? Over 1.2 billion, right, people. And there's been attempts, I mean, both in South Africa and and I think it's Madagascar, I stand to be corrected, who have tried to to develop all kinds of vaccines and they must be commended for this. However, as you quite rightly put it, all of the vaccines we are now procuring do not come from the continent. And I think it's a mixture of two things or, or maybe more. But one, the failure of the continent to integrate post-coloniality, right, since the 60s or, or late 50s, early 60s. The failure of the continent to integrate enough has therefore meant you can't unite efforts towards building the necessary facility to then develop the vaccine. And that's one thing. But what it also speaks to is really the effect that colonialism has had on our viewpoint of Africans and African knowledge, right? So we don't value what comes out of our own institutions. So we don't either put enough money towards research and development or whatever research and development comes out is not valued as much as the one that comes from the West. And therefore, when you don't put as much funds, because you can't say it's an issue of funds, we are spending billions right now to procure vaccines. Billions of dollars as a continent as a whole. And so this money could have been going towards developing our own vaccines to which wouldn't be limited in terms of numbers of procuring them. It would be easier to transport them to various countries and hopefully cheaper. But we're not doing that. So so it's a number of factors. We don't value our own education and, and research and development. 
we are also not investing enough in it. And of course, as I said earlier, I think we are not integrated enough as much as we could be at this point, over six decades later. And the vaccines too are seemingly becoming a political issue with some Western countries or first world countries rather throwing their weight around in terms of who has the ability to for mass production. So what decisions would you feel should we be making before considering what vaccines we use, whether they're produced in the United States or Russia and Chinese, as these are all heavyweights in the international community. And some people even go as far as to say that the pandemic has now become a third world problem because the countries in Africa, as we see it, are not able to produce their own vaccines. We are importing these vaccines from first world countries, these heavyweights, as they are called. So what decisions do you feel we should be making, especially to start developing our own vaccines? Thank you. Thank you, Karabo. I think, you know, when human life is concerned, we we must become as less political as possible. And so... Ultimately, the best vaccine at the best price, right? That, I think, is the main consideration. Of course, historically, we know that throughout the struggle and even post-democracy, in some sense, we've been aligned to Russia and China more so than, than America. And of course, with India also having developed its own vaccines, we are aligned with India as well. All three of these countries are in the BRICS, for example, and that's a political and economic institution that we align to. So, of course, if those vaccines are as good as any other, then we should procure them. But considering the issue of price and ultimate accessibility for the entire continent. So human life first, and then these other considerations after. So politics should not play a part at all. But we've seen COVID organics, as you mentioned earlier, from Madagascar that was hailed as an African solution to this pandemic and a cure. This in the beginning was met with much suspicion and then it disappeared. Do you think that COVID organics and any African solution was given enough of a chance to succeed? Should we be following up with COVID organics or any African solution? And should we be looking at traditional medicine a bit more closely for this pandemic? No, absolutely. The old adage is that uh, prevention is better than cure. I think African medicine is is quite important for prevention. It keeps you healthy generally, and it is not necessarily only there for curing ailments. And so I think for our general living, it would assist us to go back to some of our ways. I mean, no one questions traditional Chinese medicine and, and the like but we're very critical of our own here. And I think that says more about us than the West, actually. And that's what concerns me more. And I think it goes back again to the issue of what residue, colonial residue do we have still, be it knowledge-based, be it consciousness-based, in terms of how we view ourselves as Africans, how we view each other as Africans. I think this all affects what we then do when an African raises their hand and says, look, I've done something here, please look at it. Certainly the AU could have done more to look into that. Perhaps even Madagascar could have done more to stand for itself and what it has produced. But I think the bigger question perhaps around your question is around what the UN is doing to say, what is the UN promoting? Is the UN promoting Western medicine over ours? 
one, but are they also promoting Western produced medicine, right? Now, when we're talking about what would typically be seen as Western medicine, but produced on the African continent, are they not promoting that because it comes from here? Is that linked to the fact that we don't have a permanent member of the Security Council? All of these issues are things I think we should all look at. And there are certainly more issues to be looked at in that regard. And what would you say all of this would mean for the African Renaissance, which is something that was struggling before the pandemic? And for those who are not familiar with the term, the African Renaissance is the concept that the African people shall overcome the current challenges confronting the continent and achieve cultural, scientific, and even economic renewal. So in asking this, I'm actually trying to find out if you feel we could ever recover from the effects of this pandemic as not only a country, but as an entire continent. Thank you. Thank you, Karabo. Look, I think the effects of the pandemic on South Africa mirror a lot of the effects of the pandemic across the continent, right? But what we are also not told about South Africa and and similarly about many countries on the continent, Nigeria being one, these are two heavyweights, is that South Africa in 2019, during the third quarter, was already in recession. It's been on an economic downturn since 2010, potentially even just before. And so, of course, the pandemic made things worse, but it's not the sole cause for our issues. Far from it. And so I think once we talk about the issues of integration until such a time that African economies develop for themselves, develop each other. Many, many of our great leaders say all the time that you've never really seen any country develop from foreign direct investment. And that's what African Renaissance stands for, that Africa must be developed by Africans, right? From education to the economy to everything else that we consider to be development. We must walk proud because we create our own and we consume our own. And I think that's what we really need to go back to. It's what has hit us harder than the pandemic. The pandemic has merely exposed us, exposed these inadequacies in in development, inadequacies in, in integration and efficiencies that we could have done better on. Now, on the same trail of thought, the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement is a free trade area founded in 2018 with trade commencing as of 1 January 2021. But as we all know, 1 January 2021 was in the middle of the pandemic. How are we doing with this free trade agreement and how has the pandemic affected it? Perhaps just to state, I mean, it's, it's much older than 2018, right? However, it was... Um, what would you say, launched perhaps in 2018 on the 21st of March. And and you're right again that uh, trade commenced on the 1st of January this year. Currently, there's over 40 countries that have ratified the agreement. It's a very complex process. It's not the agreement itself that makes it complex. It's just the issue of integrating 54 countries. It's a very difficult process and we really must commend the Secretariat for the work that it's done so far. So its headquarters the headquarters of the Secretariat and therefore the headquarters of the Free Trade Area Agreement in uh, Ghana, Accra. And they're doing quite a lot. I think they had a press briefing last week sometime where they told us that over about 22 countries had delivered their protocols or rather their offers on tariff areas. So this first phase that they've been dealing with is really more focused on tariffs. How do we eliminate as many, as many tariffs as possible? 
so as to make trade flow easier. Not so much on the non-tariff barriers, such as what we're talking about, infrastructure and, and the like. And then um, they are planning, going into the future, to host a few workshops and conferences around the issue of women and youth and their own intra-African trade. Some things are said so many times that people stop wanting to hear them, but you know, we must keep saying this, that one, the continent is becoming younger. Two, the women are most hardly hit by the inability to trade on the continent because most informal traders are the women and they cross borders all the time. So that's one thing. And I think we must commend them for what they've done in terms of tariffs and, and lowering those tariffs because that matters. But until such a time that we deal with issues of connectivity, infrastructure, women and youth, we haven't moved as far as we need to. And I think as great as 40 countries ratifying an agreement is, without these countries depositing their offers around tariffs and depositing their offers around other issues linked to trade and their plans, bilateral agreements between countries on how cross-border trade can be conducted and so forth, we're really paying lip service to an important process. So we have moved, the process has moved, but there's a lot to be done still. I certainly agree with you. And just to touch on a point you made about workshops, do you feel that we still need that? I mean, don't you feel it's time that we started implementing the plans that we have instead of going back to the drawing board or maybe coming together to think of solutions? Don't you feel it's time that we actually implemented those solutions? Don't you feel it's time we approached the AU to say, we actually haven't seen your presence in this pandemic. What has the AU actually done? Don't you feel it's time that people started actively having conversations at the forefront of societal discourse that actually um, lead us forward? No, certainly, Karawa. I think on the one hand, I think dialogue is always important. It will always be important because it's during those moments that you're able to take stock of what's been done or not done. And it gives you the opportunity to actually tell those in leadership that, look, you've done nothing. And so in some ways, what we are calling for is exactly that, that a workshop where you say, we had this workshop or a similar workshop two months ago. These were the deliverables. Have you done them? Prove that you've done them. And now this is what we'd like you to do for the next two months. So it's all intertwined, I think, one. But two, you're right. Um, I think there isn't enough doing from the leadership. There isn't enough action. And I mean, when you talk pandemic purely, though, we must understand that the fault as it relates to our government is around the issue of vaccination. We were really slow to the party across the continent. And that's what's really hitting us hard. It's not so much that the plans are not there or there isn't enough doing. We were slow to come to the party in terms of vaccinating people. And perhaps the questions that we should then be asking around those plans and how far they are and so forth. And moving forward, Mr. Saudi, what does recovery from this pandemic for the continent look like? Is it even something that is achievable or as a continent, are we too far gone? No, we, we are never too far gone. It's important to know that as an African, that we are resilient people. We've overcome far worse things than the pandemic. Now, the economic impact of the pandemic will be felt 
long after it has gone. In terms of South Africa alone, we are told that uh, we're likely to recover economically to pre-COVID numbers only around 2023-2024, right? Not in terms of growing the economy, just in terms of pre-COVID-19 numbers, which would essentially mean that in 2024, we'd still be in recession, just on an upward turn, if you like. And I think that's the case across the continent. But that is not to say it cannot be done. If we do what we need to do around the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement, I think we would be fine. Someone was saying not too long ago that Madagascar, for example, produces and exports over 80% of the world's vanilla pods, which are then used in confectionery and perfume and all of these things. Now, it's not exported to other African countries. It's exported largely to Europe and the Americas. Imagine if that was exported here and then beneficiated here and then sold here. Because a lot of these products then come at a premium as a fragrance, as a vanilla something. And then we have a problem where we're paying a premium for something that we really could have developed ourselves. So we need an awareness and a consciousness as a continent around purchasing things that are from the continent and around ensuring that we beneficiate our natural resources, right? This could be said about Zambia with its copper, which goes to China, then it comes back as cables that they pay for at a premium as well, that we pay for at a premium. Cacao and cocoa in West Africa, you know, diamonds, oil and the like from Central Africa. This is the same across the continent. So until such a time that Africans take themselves seriously, take their own products seriously, and decide to participate in the global economy, we cannot recover, pandemic or no pandemic. Thank you, Mr. Pusilets of Saudi, who is a legal expert. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1. Or stream via www.varfm.co.za.